I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to the Times Business Podcast, where we're taking a close look at some of the key issues that affect us all and will continue to dominate headlines and comment pages in the coming days. I'm Robert Miller. That means what to expect from rising interest rates, why banks are getting ever more peeved with the government, and we have this. Makes you smile just thinking about it. Yes, it is the irrepressible Elon Musk launching the SpaceX Falcon Heavy. We'll be finding out how his more earthbound business, Tesla car making, is doing. I'm joined by Tom Knowles, economics correspondent, Catherine Griffiths, our banking editor, and business columnist Alexandra Freen. Thanks for being here. Tom, let's start with you. Economics. Mark Carney, he's just delivered the Bank of England's 101st inflation report. Slip in a little factoid there. Let's just listen to a clip of what he had to say. What the committee has said is that we expect that um, in order to return inflation sustainably to target, recognizing that we expect the economy to move into a situation of excess demand and inflation still to be above target at the three-year horizon, that in order to bring it back to target over a more conventional horizon, which means moving it in from that three-year horizon, that it will be necessary likely to be necessary to raise interest rates to a limited degree in a gradual process, but somewhat earlier and to a somewhat greater extent than we had thought in November. Tom, just break that down for us. What was he actually saying? <laughs> it's, a, it's a good question. Um, so somewhat earlier and to somewhat greater extent uh, sounds vague and it sort of deliberately is vague, but reading between the lines, interest rate rises are now expected in May, whereas most markets thought the first next interest rate rise wouldn't be till November. Um, And basically, Mark Carney is saying that inflation is rising too fast and that they need to bring it down in a shorter time than they perhaps first anticipated. So they want to bring it down to this target of around 2% within two years, not three years, which means toughening up interest rates. So it might mean that we have three interest rate rises over the next three years rather than two or possibly even more than that. But he's deliberately being vague because that prevents, if if he completely changes his mind, 
a few months later, which he has been known to do, and other members of the Bank of England have been known to do, the markets can't get angry with him because he's kind of left it a bit vague. But they're put pricing in a 67% chance that the first rate rise will be in May. And that will mean higher mortgage rates, uh, slightly better for savers. Uh, and will that actually be quite significant because we only had the first rate rise uh, in a decade in November. And it's been 0.5% for many years now. So to go back up to 0.75% would be quite a significant jump. Do you think that they may even have to accelerate beyond that? Or was he sort of painting the worst case scenario that we can expect? Because this is, it's going to be a shock to people, isn't it? You said there's a whole generation who wouldn't even know what an interest rate rise was until last November. Yeah, yeah. There, there's there's a lot of people who aren't used to it. I mean, I hopefully... There's so much news about this kind of thing. Like when, you know, when the first interest rate rise in a decade was uh, came about in November, almost everyone was expecting it. So hopefully, savers and households are prepared when these things happen. But yes, it it, it will. Basically, Carney is saying we're now starting to enter a period where you're going to see gradual rate rises. Nowhere near like we saw, you know, only a decade ago. But it's going to start creeping up again. We're no longer in this era of super cheap borrowing and that means that you know there's a lot of people still who rack up a lot of credit card debt and are are very reliant on consumer credit and maybe they're going to have to be a bit tougher the problem is is that although unemployment's at a 42 year low and employment's at a record high wages still aren't moving as fast as people would expect at at these kind of levels where we're sort of almost at full employment. So, you know, in in real terms, once you take inflation into account, wages are falling. And that makes it difficult. It it means people are more reliant on consumer credit. And yet the bank's saying, well, it's going to become more costly to do that. Catherine, if I could bring you in here. Are the banks going to tighten their lending criteria, do you feel? Or is there really not too much to worry about? If you've got employment, you can get credit. Um, Yeah, I think that the banks have been preparing for this for a long time. And when you think that Lloyd's did a massive credit card um, acquisition last year, it bought MBNA um, and maintained that that was completely kind of prudent and fine from a sort of impending bad debts point of view. I think that we're unlikely to suddenly see kind of bad debts coming out at the banks or indeed them sort of dramatically changing their their policy on lending. Um, a few years ago, when there was a sort of expectation that rate rises might start and then they didn't start, you had people like um, the person who ran the old, the bad Northern Rock business warning that uh, rate rises would have a quite a material effect on that sort of book of business. But then it was sort of pushed down the road a bit and there's been more time to kind of sort some of those customers out. So I don't think it's going to have a particularly um, dramatic effect. There was mention uh, during the inflation report um, press conference with the governor and some of his colleagues, there was some talk about, well, the banks don't always pass on these rate rises in full, but they're quick enough to cut them to the bone when they fall the banks have, have always argued that they play fair on this. Do you think there's a case that they could do it more swiftly or are we unfairly being rude about them? Certainly when the Bank of England cut rates in response to the crisis and kept cutting, the Bank of England explicitly told the banks to make sure they passed on those rate cuts to customers um, rank, literally rang them up and told them to do it kind of thing because there's no actual rule that says they have to. On the way back up, 
it will be a decision for the banks and and they'll make that decision on kind of competitive grounds. Um, after the first rate rise, they're pretty tardy to pass that on to savers and I should imagine that will happen again. Alexander, let me bring you in here. I'm actually drawing on your experience in the United States. Once these interest rates become established, it seems to me that the Fed again is leading the way. Uh, God bless us all. Janet Yellen isn't with us anymore. It's a new Fed chairman. Is it going to be more of the same or do you feel now we're into this, we're just going to be raising rates at a steady pace for the next couple of years? Well, I think it depends who you talk to, but let's just reassure our listeners that Janet Yellen hasn't actually died. She's just ceased <laughs> oh, no, being no, she's gone to the chair bookings. of the Federal Reserve. She's gone to the... Uh, I don't know where she's it's gone Brooklyn's to, academia. Yeah, oh, has she gone to Yes, Brooklyn's. she started on Monday. Good, good for her. Um, I think that, uh, I mean, it depends who you talk to. Some economists uh, expect a further rate rise in November in the UK. Others think that inflation will be curbed by the end of the year because of the strength of sterling and we won't need a, another rise. So I don't think we can expect the UK rate rises to be in lockstep with what's happening in America. We've got quite different uh, economic outlook uh, to the United States. There is a general trend that we'll follow them, but I don't think it's necessarily going to be that every time they move, we move. It hasn't happened since the um, recovery from the financial crisis. And I, I think it's going to be some time before that pattern is is quite tightly put in place uh, again, if ever. Just a final quick thought from you, Tom, on this. I mean, the governor's been accused many times of flip flopping and changing his mind. And you said, well, he was caveated in case he has to. You followed all this. Has Carney, in your mind, to date, done a good job in protecting consumer interests, borrowers, savers, everybody, which is part of his mandate, isn't it? Oh, I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a big question. Um, yes, I think so. I think there's a reasonably strong argument to say that perhaps they reacted too quickly to Brexit by you know, slashing interest rates to 0.25%, at the lowest level in the bank's 320-year-plus history. Perhaps there's an argument to say that that wasn't necessary, but I do get the feeling that you know, he, he is very much this... My, my role is, is to basically just keep inflation in, in tow. He does always say that. The monetary policy committee's main role is to keep inflation around the target of 2%, and that's his his main focus. And he's always seemed pretty relaxed in some ways about the amount of consumer debt that, uh, you know, households are building up. He was just saying banks need to be careful and, you know, have more buffers in case there was a sort of sudden financial downturn. But the actual consumers themselves, he says it, it's nowhere near the levels we saw just before the recession. So it's not as bad as, you know... It, it once was, so don't worry. But yes, I, I don't know if the others agree with me what Catherine thinks or Alex. But Good governor, bad governor, looked after our interests. Yeah, I think he's been a reasonably good governor. Um, he came in with a kind of sparkling uh, forward guidance idea and then got kind of shot down about it a little bit. But last few years seems to have done a fairly good job and sort of exits stage left next May, isn't it, Tom? A yes. year and a bit's time. So he's kind of got, you know, he's got a year to completely polish up his legacy. All right, well, we'll leave that there. And actually, Catherine, while we, Tom just mentioned Brexit, let's move on to that because we've had Japanese business leaders meeting with Theresa May. She went on a trade mission 
to China. And the banks, it seems to me, are getting very restive about having a complete lack of guidance and planning. What are you hearing from the people you talk to without necessarily naming names, but feel free to do so? Are they getting the feeling that this is a leaderless campaign to get us out of Brexit? They can't make, in other words, they can't make proper investment decisions. Yeah, they are very frustrated um, and have been for a long time. Um, The financial services industry has done lots and lots of its own work on how a future relationship could work between the uh, UK and the remaining 27 in the financial services world. What they initially wanted was passporting and everyone now knows they're not going to get that. What they now want is a proper services, free trade deal. They think they can see how it could work, fundamentally based on on this idea of equivalence, i.e. that our rules and the EU's rules are, are the same. Um, they want a free trade deal rather than a kind of ongoing equivalence arrangement because a free trade deal is much more certain. There are reams of reports out there, or, you know, on how it could work, you know, kind of legislation just sign here type thing everyone and you're we're off off we go but obviously they have to overcome the political hurdles they feel frustrated that they can't get kind of a better a better commitment from the government to their plan but certainly within government that's what what government people want too but what you certainly do see is sort of figures within the city who have who have done the work on these plans going around the EU27 now, you know, I think that this is what they'll be doing over the next couple of months, actually quite intensively. They'll be lobbying the individual members to persuade them that this is the way forward. And certainly some of them, you know, broadly speaking, places like Luxembourg, maybe Germany, Holland are seen as friendly to the UK and seen as kind of wanting a good, decent relationship and, and that, you know, everyone will benefit. And from the very beginning, everyone suspected the French have wanted to do down the UK. And that's a kind of slightly cartoonish idea. But there have been various things that have come out over the last year or so, which suggest that, yes, indeed, the French, you know, they see an advantage to promoting Paris. And so therefore, they may well put kind of barriers in place. I think that this is a conversation we've had several times on this podcast is is that the heads of uh, British industry are very frustrated. And we had uh, Emma Walmsley, the chief executive of Glaxo this week, um, saying very publicly and and quite um, emphatically that um, that the government needs to hurry up. Um, Everyone's expecting that there'll be a transition period after March 2019 when we officially are out of the EU and during this transition period that's the time where everything adjusts until we get used to the the new normal of uh, life outside the EU but Emma Walmsley was saying this week she wants the agreements around the transition period signed by April that's in two months time for a company like Glaxo it's not that, that they do a lot of their business in the UK the UK is a small part of their business but it's a very highly regulated business, the manufacture of pharmaceuticals, it's very complicated. They don't know who's going to regulate them. They don't know what kind of tariffs are going to be on drugs. And these these things really matter, who can get access to the right drugs at the right time. And I think we're going to see more companies like uh, Glaxo speaking out, voicing their frustration. They're not trying to be negative. They're not trying to be unhelpful, but they are trying to point out 
that there's an awful lot to get done between now and the start of the transition period. And we need to have that in place within weeks and not months. And we certainly can't wait until just before March 2019 to agree these things. Certainly, um, speaking to kind of financial services types, I, I think as Alex is, is saying about Glaxo, they're, they're most pressing concern right now is just the terms of transition, let alone down the line looking at whatever free trade deal may or may not be possible. They're really nervous that by end of March time, they're not actually going to get the transition terms agreed. And I think if they don't, you know, everyone talks about these kind of trigger moments, but certainly in the city, people have been talking about end of Q1 for a long time as being the crunch moment. Well, that's approaching. All right, sit tight and we'll be back in a minute. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. David Bowie's Life on Mars there, and that actually featured during the launch of the SpaceX Falcon Heavy this week from the Kennedy Center in Florida. Alexandra, I'm going to start with you. Elon Musk, I mean, he had some results uh, from Tesla, but first, let's just look at the SpaceX. I mean, this is a crazy dream of a rich man or something more. Well, of course, it's a crazy dream of a rich man, but it might he might be able to pull it off. It's it's interesting to me that there's a bunch of these ultra wealthy billionaires in in America building space rockets. Jeff Bezos, the head of Amazon, has got his own uh, private rocket company. It does seem to be a very male status thing. I think that uh, what Elon Musk is trying to do with SpaceX is create a, a taxi service, you know, these renewable rockets that will, or recyclable rockets that will just take payloads up, satellites and bits of space stations. Ultimately, he wants to get to Mars. He thinks he's going to be living on Mars in his 50s and he's 46 now. So he's um, very ambitious. 
The real aim, though, is to take payloads up into space. He showed with the, this launch this week that he can do it, that this rocket can take a very heavy payload. It's, a, I'm told, currently the biggest rocket that can take the heaviest payload available, although there have been bigger ones in the past. And he's going to bring down the costs for people wanting to launch stuff in space. It'll cost you 90 million or so to send something up on one of his rockets compared with two, three times that um, with other operations. Yes, I mean, that's a good point. It's, it's commercially viable. It's taking a payload that's the equivalent, I understand, of uh, 12 elephants. The very good piece in Times 2, T2, by Stephen Armstrong, a feature on Elon Musk, and it uh, actually points out some rather crucial statistics about how this might turn into be uh, quite a good business yet. But looking at what's existing and, and more earthly matters, I suppose we should look at Tesla uh, reported its results. And the one thing I'd say is that it does have revenue. The point you make about taking payloads and getting people to pay it into space with the car, he's still generating revenues in the latest results of $3 billion, and he has cash of $3 billion in Tesla on the books. That's not totally unhealthy, is it? But he's making a loss. Yes, he's, um, uh, yes. he's biggest, making a loss. His, and his, and his, his, loss ever. his losses are widening. Um, but, you know, it's early days. He, he I think that Elon Musk would probably like us to say that the rules that apply to everyone else don't apply to him. He's an extraordinary person. He's self-taught. He's a loner. Um, if that excellent T2 article describes how he was bullied a lot at school and suddenly yeah. everything all falls into place. I th- I, you know, he, he might pull it off. Building electric cars is a very complex operation. I think that all the people who thought that the tech companies were going to be the first to succeed, I have always said I don't think... They will. I think it's going to be a dedicated car maker that that succeeds in making the first mass-produced full full electric, not hybrids. And by full electric, I mean ones that that can go long distance. Uh, Nissan has shown already that it's very good at that. It's hard to make cars, and I think you need car makers to do it. And he has a a car factory. He might be overreaching himself. It's too early to say. But I I would... um, Happily buy. Yeah, I would happily buy a Tesla if I had a car and wanted one. Tom, do the economics, I mean, in the broad terms that we were talking about, do they seem to work or is this really, as, as Alex said, I mean, it's a very rich billionaire who can afford to. It says his net worth uh, in the papers, well, $21 billion. Uh, I think, I think we will see a lot of people using electric cars in a shorter space of time than perhaps we're expecting now. I think this will, this is, it feels like there's a sort of progression behind it now. But there's lots of things that you just don't think about that, that need to be thought about, like, like insurance. Who, if you're in a, say, driverless car, who, who insures that? Is it, is it the car manufacturer or is it the person is in it or is it something else? If we think maybe 50 years down the line, there are teenagers who will not bother to learn to drive. They'll just, get in these driverless cars what if that driverless car then hits someone who who who's responsible is so all these things are starting to arise and and people will think well how can we make money out of this but it's it's very interesting there's there's a lot of unanswered questions around some of this stuff already catherine in the city i mean in personal view would you if you had the chance would you prefer an electric car do you think um yeah i'd quite like a tesla myself if i had lots of spare money but certainly the the driverless point is a is a very interesting one and and it's a really huge issue for the insurance industry um because car insurance is a really large part of their business 
and they really haven't got the answers yet as to who is liable in these situations. I also think the the problem at the moment is Tesla's a bit like, I apologise also for vegans here, but it's a bit like vegans. You don't need to ask them if they're a vegan and you don't need to ask people if they're Tesla owners. You, you will find out. They will tell you. It's still very much a, let me show you all the cool things this car does. So looking forward to the time where people just have a car that's a Tesla without showing off about it all the time. Final word to you, Alex. I, I think it's interesting. You know, the Times' office, we're based in London Bridge in London. If you look, walk around our office, all the streets, there are electric car charging points been, been put up all around here. Um, it's here already. Um, they're not obviously all for Teslas, but it's, it's upon us, the electric car. The, uh, I think the points that uh, Tom and Catherine made about insurance are really fascinating. There are already analysts writing uh, notes uh, against the insurance companies saying don't buy. You know, in, in, in the States, Warren Buffett's shares have been, have been buffeted after various analysts have uh, suggested that, you know, his overexposure or his heavy exposure to insurance is going to harm him when we're all in our self-driving cars. So it's an absolutely fascinating bit of mental gymnastics to try and figure out what the answer is. Well, there's a puzzle we can all work on. That's about it for now. So thank you all. And do watch out in the coming days for updates from Galliford Tri, Acacia Mining, Coca-Cola and Shah. There'll be quite a few others as well. There's that and the other news and analysis online, on your phones, tablets and in the paper. If you'd like to become a subscriber, you can go to thetimes.co.uk. You can also then receive our daily morning and lunchtime business bulletins. If you do want to hear us weekly, you can subscribe through iTunes. My thanks to Alexandra Freen, Catherine Griffiths and Tom Knowles. They're on Twitter, so please do follow them. And do join us again next week. Thanks for listening. And we'll leave you with a bit more David Bowie and Elon Musk. Three, two, Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Paige Desorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.